0: So even though there's a huge opportunity for using workforce AI to hire the right people and avoid attrition and so on, we have to be really, really careful if we do anything in that area because of the the regulatory policies that are emerging on it.
1: Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. You're going to love this conversation. I speak with Tom Davenport. Tom Davenport is a world-renowned thought leader and author, He is the President's Distinguished Professor of Information Technology and Management at Babson College, a fellow of the MIT Center of Digital Business, and an independent senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics, an author and co-author of 20-plus books and more than 200 articles. His main focus is helping organizations transform their management practices in digital business domains like artificial intelligence, analytics, information and knowledge management, process management, and enterprise systems. Tom, what an honor to have you in Stories and AI. Welcome, and how are you today? Thanks, Ganesh, happy to be here. I'm doing very well.
0: Hope you are as well. Yeah. Yeah. I am, I am. Thank you so much. And uh, where are you calling from today? Santa Barbara, California, at the moment. Um,
1: That's lovely nice. place. But- If
0: only it would rain a little bit more, we'd all be
1: very happy in California. So. <laughs> awesome. Tom, why don't we get started with your background, your story? Everybody knows you. You're actually a, a celebrity in analytics and AI and uh, for organizations. But talk about how you got into data, your journey, and you know where, where it is today. Sure. Well, I was
0: initially a user of all of these tools as a graduate student. And then I paid my way through graduate school dispensing statistical computing advice. And then I decided I was going to become a sort of a regular academic sociologist, which was my, um, you know, academic training. And I found it kind of boring to sit in my office all day and write papers for a few other academic sociologists. So I um, decided I was going to Go into consulting, almost went to business school to get an MBA, but um, barely escaped a couple of weeks before I got a job at a IT strategy consulting boutique in Cambridge, Mass. Um, and so started doing a little bit of consulting, but I ended up gravi- gravitating toward research and writing, so, so-called so thought leadership activities, and um Got into, I guess my first real interest was um, from a publishing standpoint, was on business process reengineering, and then um, that migrated into ERP systems and how to get value from them and then knowledge management. And then um, a- analytics sort of came out of knowledge management because I noticed that people were managing a lot of text-based knowledge, but they weren't really focusing on extracting value from data. Um, using the same sort of, you know, ideas. So um, I started writing stuff on that and um, became a lot more popular than I thought. And I stuck with that for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And then analytics, of course, evolved into big data and AI, which is quite similar in many ways, but has its own set of issues.
1: Got it. No, I, you know, I think, you know, you, you, you have a very unique perspective, right? Having lived through all the winters of AI, you know, really looking, being on the, when I, when I look at your background and, and your experience and, you know, even in your writings, it's very evident that there is an element of, you know, built, mixing theory and research to practically, how do you actually put that to practice to make a difference in organizations, right? So those, that comes very clearly through, um,
0: well, I try. So, I mean, so- I
1: talk to a lot of people. I do tons of
0: interviews and I don't really, you know, um, it's not terribly rigorous research. I'm sure some of my academic colleagues don't um, find it terribly impressive, but I find it. you know, if you jump into an area early and you interview a lot of people, you can provide some value to lot. practitioners.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that learning. So why don't we start from the top and you know, the case on, you, you, you wrote very early on, you wrote about the advantage with analytics and data and AI for organizations, right? So how, why is it relevant today in today's world for businesses to pay attention, be a part of this revolution? And how do they really make it theirs? How, why is AI such a big deal? Um, Well, Ganesh, I've
0: always been interested in sort of companies who don't just sort of automate their existing processes, um, but they really try to change the way they do work, the way they go to market, the way they, um, you know, create their business models. And I think AI offers an incredible opportunity to do that. I mean, certainly we can get some... um, incremental productivity benefits from it. But I'm certainly much more interested in the companies who say, we're going to go all in on AI. And that's my, um, I've been writing a lot of books. I think there's going to be several coming out this year, but one of them is going to be called, I think, All In on AI and its companies. It's Mm. kind of like competing on analytics, only it's about AI. It's companies that really embrace it, that really, um, try to use it in innovative um, ways and um, really change their strategies, their business models, their key business processes, et cetera. And I think there's an amazing opportunity to do that with AI. It's an incredibly powerful technology. And those who don't, I think, will end up you know, falling by the wayside in, in many cases. So.
1: No, it's fair. So so why what is different this time around, right? I mean, like in the eighties there was another way for AI, right? So what's yeah, different? I was around, around
0: then right? and, and I studied those expert systems as they were called and never wrote a book about it, but uh, wrote some articles. And I you know, I think the technology is better this time. And by the way, some number of companies are still using rule-based technologies but um, not exclusively they're obviously doing a lot with machine learning as well we have a lot more data this time than we did before um, uh, I think we're at the point where it's can't be considered you know just an AI spring or you know we're in perpetual spring now it's not going to go away. Yeah, there may be, you know, some um, disappointments with some technologies. And I would probably argue people who know more about um, AI technology than I do, many of them think we're probably a little bit overly dependent upon deep learning as a way to sort of make sense sure. of the world. But, um, you know, it's it's a very powerful tool. I think if we augment that with other tools, um, start to be able to do more causal explanations of what's happening with ai more explainable kinds of ai i think will will be fine
1: no so tom actually it's in, it's interesting you say that like one i, I do believe the same thing we're in, i think we're past the spring we're actually i think we've we've crossed that chasm for ai it's it's not going to go away right i mean it's going to be there now the question is and i love how you framed it initially the opportunity for the ai it's not just to incrementally make changes because ai gives you the the kind of leverage that you can do to go unlock potential that you didn't have before right you didn't have means to do it so identifying you know big opportunities to grow in you know, areas that you haven't really ventured before and things that's what the opportunity comes in uh, and then i love you know the the on one of the lessons and i look back and studied the, the the last winter and stuff too right and uh, I think the good thing that came out of the last thing was when expert systems and symbolic logic was the big deal, right? Now, like you very well said, there is definitely uh, a lot more dependence on data-driven machine learning and deep learning to understand the world. And the truth is actually it's somewhere in the middle. Like if you can mix those two approaches together, right? You capture common sense, you know. You you know, like the Psych project, for example, just runs with yeah, you know, no, Austin, tools. A classic yeah. Austin-based um, AI
0: project that. I thought it was That's a really nice. interesting idea. Unfortunately, it never really
1: turned out to, you know, master all of common sense. Yeah, no, it's so. But you know, but they're doing. And I, I spoke to Doug Doug Leonard uh, recently, and they're doing a lot of work. But right now, they're like, look, take that common sense, apply it to specific small business processes, and deliver value, right? Then, and the from the the vision was still there. But I think you take an approach like that, then you augment that with data driven machine learning and deep learning it can be really powerful right and, I'm, I'm, and i and i know there's a lot of organizations new startups new companies focusing on that front too for sure so it's great so where is ai today what do you see in organizations you know how are they deploying this to as a tool to improve their you know uh, chances of not just survival but really thrive in this digital world and uh, what's working what's not working according to you
0: well, I, you know, I think there are two classes of companies, Ganesh. They're the um, digital native companies—the Googles, the Facebooks, um, the um, uh, to some degree Microsoft, to Amazon certainly—and they have already transformed their business models with AI and couldn't really exist without them in anything yeah. like the. Um, um, situation they're they're in today um, and then there are the sort of legacy companies who are trying to um, redo their business models and transform themselves with AI there aren't enough of those unfortunately but there are some as I say I'm, I'm I've been writing a book about them I it's a pretty small percentage maybe you know one or two percent of the of the fortune uh, 100 or 500. But wow. um, they, to me, are the most interesting ones. And, um, and then there are a number of companies that are sort of dipping their toe in, you know, um, uh, with proofs of concept or um, automation-oriented projects, which, I, you know, I don't disparage at all. I think they're really quite useful. I just um, got off the phone with the CEO of Work Fusion, one of the Typical, typically viewed as an RPA company, but he said, "No, we're more of a yep. machine learning company now." Um, so I think there are opportunities there in the automation space. But as I said, what really interests me is how you how you use AI to change what you do in a fairly substantial way, not just you know um, take what you've been doing and run it on a machine.
1: Yeah, no. So Tom, you know the playbook that the digitally native organizations use. Will not work for these legacy companies trying to transform, right? Because I mean, they start with a position of strength, with data, direct to customer intimacy, not the legacy distribution channels. There's so much advantages they already born with in a web, you know, web 2.0, web 3.0 kind of a a landscape. So explore that a little bit for me. So what is the, I mean, what are those companies that are in the Fortune 100 or 1000, that the smaller percentage of them, what are they doing to adapt into this way of thinking with AI? um well it it takes really strong leadership
0: uh, i was just writing a little article this morning about some of the leaders i've encountered over the past year or so who are really transforming their companies so um uh Piyush gupta the ceo of dbs bank in singapore is a great example um uh, peter ma the ceo of ping an in china which is a Fantastic company, largest private sector company in China, um, and developed this ecosystem model with five different ecosystems, all of which are driven Mm -hmm. by AI. Um, And then um, there's a little company that, not little, you know, there's seven or eight hundred million in revenues now, but um, a U.S. based company. There um, again, there aren't as many of those as there ought to be. Called CCC Intelligent Solutions. That's Using AI to revolutionize how you do insurance claims with um, yep. you know taking photos and analyzing the photos and um, selling that capability to USAA and Liberty Mutual and you know the, these big companies. So um, uh, a lot of the big companies that I talk to are partnering, frankly, with other firms, Anthem, you know, the big health insurance company, Yes. Um has a number yes. of partnerships. Um, uh, other insurance yes. companies um, are partnering with vitality health insurance companies and life insurance companies to try to start changing customer behavior using AI and, you know, making um, uh, nutrition or exercise or health um, uh, care mm-hmm. kinds of recommendations. So um, I think it's hard for companies sometimes to do this on their own. And so partnering with a startup, maybe acquiring a startup is not a, not a bad idea. But uh, Ping An and um, DBS and CCC, they're pretty much doing it on their own. And, and I certainly commend them for being able to do that.
1: That is awesome. No, I, and I, you know, you, you mentioned Anthem, and I know you, you you work very closely with Rajiv. I've worked very closely with Rajiv, Rananki and team two uh, at yeah, Anthem. And now I was the involved in partnering. Of, yeah.
0: Now the president of their whole platform business. And you know, I, next time I talk to him, I have to ask him, well, you must be the successor CEO because they're talking about moving the whole company to a platform based business, and you're the head of that That's business. Insane.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's incredible. And I've seen I've seen that journey and the transformation at Anthem, at least for the last three, three years, or start, three four years, and it's just incredible what they've been able to achieve there. And I mean, so it's a, to your point. I think it's possible, and there is a way to do it. And I'm hoping that all CEOs and leaders can take a lot of play uh, a lot of that playbook from your new book, all in on AI which we'll talk about in a later episode once, you, once you've launched it. Um, right, thank you. <laughs> right, and I think, but, but you know, it involves, like you said, being having an open mind. It's about making sure that you're bringing and trying to innovate with partners in mind. You may or may not be able to do it all together, right? Because there's a lot of cultural element. There's a lot of talent and capability element. And then there's a lot of just, just newer thinking on how we actually bring uh, innovation to bear. Right. Yeah.
0: And I think you know, the thing I was writing about this morning is you really if you're going to lead this kind of transformation, you really need to know something about how AI works and what it might be capable of today and in the future. Um, CCC's CEO is a guy named um, Gitesh Ramamurthy, not to be confused with Ganesh. Uh, um, and he um Uh, was the CTO before, and um, uh, seemed to have a good um, uh, sense for how technologies were going to evolve. They were trying to figure out how do we use these um, uh, smartphone photos to figure out damage of cars after collisions, and the photos weren't quite up to it, and the AI wasn't quite up to it. And so um, he said it's basically a 10-year journey. Now, USAA was the first big company to adopt that capability, but it involves the, the you know, ability to look into the future and say what's going to be possible with this stuff in a, in a number of years. And Gitesh had done it before. He was the, one of the co-founders of a, a sales um, force automation company that, that was eventually sold to Dun & Bradstreet. Um, and he said there, you know, personal computers were just invented and the idea of lugging them around in order to sort of see what your customer had bought from you before you call on them, it was impossible. We just thought laptops would get lighter and more powerful and you'd be able to do it as you traveled. And certainly that came to be true.
1: Yeah. No, I think you know it's interesting. A couple of things are, you know, I'm, I'm noticing the way you say it. One is. There's a whole notion of techno business leadership. It's not just the traditional way. There's a new way of leading companies, initiatives, transformations, if you will, and then it really helps. I mean, the connecting the dots, in looking into the future, predicting where this thing is. It's a lot of, you know, trying to draw the different what seemingly disparate pieces of transitions that are happening. Like you said, like you know, there's this whole all this noise right now about Web three and crypto and uh, you know decentralization. As a, um, um, as a way to actually solve certain problems. You know, all of these different things may all be individual. It looks like individual lines looking forward, but they all can converge and create opportunities. And being able to see that becomes all the more critical as well, right? Um, it's awesome. Now, I, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that most organizations that i worked with, I mean, a lot of organizations still, they're either experimenting, they've made some success, but it's really hard because one of the things, AI is hard, right? So one of the things that most organizations have understood right now is it's not just important. I can't just buy my way into being an AI company. I have to change things. I have to build capacity. I have to build capability. And I have to really you know, uh, invest in it for the long term, right? So brings a very interesting uh, dynamic. An average company that started in AI two or three years ago has probably not still seen an ROI from the efforts because it's a continuously you got to keep investing, keep investing, keep investing, and then you know hopefully at some date it's will start pay out. So and you've written and you've talked about it like the whole notion of what is I think you call it ROI, right? Return on AI. Um, explore that for me. Where do you see organizations realizing value, and how do they not realize value today? Um, yeah, well, the, that. if you, if you want a prescription for not realizing value.
0: Um, don't um, deploy your solution <laughs> because, you know, if we don't get production deployment and we leave something as a proof of concept or a pilot or whatever, there's no economic value. Um, I mean, it's prob- it's a useful learning exercise in many cases, but, you know, you're not processing any transactions, you're not um, doing anything for customers and, you know, admittedly production deployment can be hard that's where we have to change the business process and integrate our ai capability with the existing systems that we have and maybe upskill or reskill some of the people who are doing the work all of that's a, a lot of um expense and hassle in many cases but if you don't do it then you're not going to get value and i think too many companies you know they just didn't make enough Commitment to AI, they said, "Let's let's try it out. Let's have a a a POC." Um, But they didn't plan for deployment in the first place, and um, you you come to the end of the POC, and uh, they don't really have a strategy for what to do next. So I think that's the single. If you want to get um, no value, that's the single best approach to to it going about it.
1: And w- what is commitment? What is, you know, what kind of commitment do you need to make to make AI work for you and your organization?
0: Well, there's a s- substantial investment commitment. I mean, you know, the, the companies that are really into this are spending uh, millions and millions of, of dollars on it. There is a commitment to your people that will, um, um, uh, Keep you around, assuming you're willing to learn some new skills. And by the way, here's some new skills that you can you can um, pursue. We'll make them available to you. We may not be sure exactly how your job is going to change or what you want to do, but here's a whole menu of things you could learn from. Um, uh, in some cases, it's partnering. As I said, I, I've been uh, looking at Shell, and they have a partnership with. C3 um, AI and Baker Hughes, the kind of oil field technology company, um, to try to um, both transition into you know, non-carbon based sources of energy, but also to make their existing business much more efficient by instead of inspecting pipelines with with human inspectors, you know, flying over with drones and taking photos and analyzing them and, and so on. It's a huge improvement in productivity. So um, I uh, I think in many cases, there's a lot of expertise out there and you might as well um, try to form it through ecosystems as well as doing everything in, internally. And even, you know, even in the companies like DBS says, we, we want to compete with the digital natives. That means we have to develop a lot of this technology ourselves, but they're also trying to create, I think they have 200 APIs that link to different aspects of the economy. So um, uh, ecosystems and platform-based businesses, I think, are are the way to go for many companies in this regard. Ping An is the, the master of this.
1: Yeah, no, it's actually interesting. I love to, you know, that ecosystem thing. It's it's um, it's very relevant because I think it provides on the both sides, right? The digital native companies who started off as something else now with the technology platform can extend their reach into other things. A great example is I accidentally ran into Stripe, uh, the the Patrick Collision's company in in the Bay Area, having a banking as a service uh, API set. I mean this was completely out of action I was like I don't know where I was in their website I just well went in and then you can see that you can just literally add a f- banking service into your mobile app or into your website you know complete with servicing loans lending everything you know all in you know not non crypto way if, of course um and it's just fascinating so they are opening up areas that are in periphery to where they are and are helping with I'm going to help you process bills and invoices now i'm going to go and give you a banking service to get access to funding right and so same thing like you said the bbs example the other way right they can now you know or Ping ads example with their ecosystem can encroach and enter other markets as well to start getting value out of it right well and if you do that well it
0: becomes a a real virtuous circle where the ecosystem model gets you more customers um, uh, because of these relationships and that provides more data and that gives you a better ability to train your models and improve the AI related capabilities that you're offering. And that gets you more customers, which gets you more data. So it, it just really cycles in a very positive way.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And, and so, in an AOI, uh, sorry, ROI for AI or ROAI, it's not just a, a multiple return that is just like, hey, I'm going to get 2x ROI and stuff. It's about creating that exponential return curve because you're now continuously gaining value from the little things and changes that you're making in the process, right? Um, that's that's definitely a fascinating thought. Uh, one of the things that, you know, I always used to um, uh, encounter business leaders that I, you know, either consulted with or were customers of mine in AI were like, they lose patience. Like 18 months into this thing, look, I just hired a 30-people team. There's a lot of data scientists. There's a lot of data engineers. And we're put two products uh, in production. And you know, at least a year, a couple of years ago, that was initially just a conversation about, oh, I may not have the right tools in place to go make that happen. So let's go talk to a bunch of new other companies. Let's add some tools and stuff. But I think we have now very well realized it's not, just the tools. It's the people, the process, how they actually do it. And one of the um uh, interesting, I would say, evolutions of AI on how organizations are adopting AI is starting off with these centralized centers of excellence or COE teams, right? Where they're pulling in this bunch of 35 to 40 to 50. And I remember talking to JP Morgan Chase like five years ago. They had, you know, like a hundred people doing that, and their big issue. And Lori Bear was like, Look, my concern is not how do I make that 100 people productive. My concern is I have 55,000 developers who are all building technology to serve our customers. How do I enable them to do more with data science and AI? So, and you've written and talked about you know, how data science needs to be democratized for organizations to really win with AI. Right? Explore that for me a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, um, there are never going to be enough data scientists out there to do all we want to do with AI. And fortunately, a number of, of new technologies have come along that make it possible for people without data science backgrounds to do some pretty impressive model development work and even model deployment work. And so why not take advantage of those for people who are motivated and, you know, willing to learn some new ways of doing things? I a few years ago, one of the companies that I work with is Data Robot, and I, an automated machine learning company, and now MLOps yep. as well. And I interviewed a number of their customers. I remember talking to a guy who um, was the uh, senior risk executive at RBC, Royal Bank of Canada. And he said, you know, I have... A couple of choices. I could maybe, if I'm lucky, hire some data scientists um, and have them build models. It's unlikely they'll know much about banking or my customers or really even care all that much because you know they want to build models and that's what they're good at. Or he said I could find somebody who understands my customers. Um, you know, maybe an analyst type in the bank, somebody who knows banking and say, okay, here's some auto ML tools at your disposal, see if you can develop some models. And he said, in most cases, I'll take the latter. Um, And there are a lot more of those to choose from. So I've been a little disappointed at how um, quickly companies have embraced this idea. There are in my book, I've been writing about Kroger and their data science subsidiary 84.51 degrees, one of the Lot uh, more oddly named um, companies, but that's the longitude of Cincinnati where they're they're based, and they say they do a lot what of longitudinal models. But they have, um, in addition to having a lot of data scientists, they've also um, empowered these people they call Insight Specialists to develop mm-hmm. models um, with Auto ML, and in many cases, they say the models are. You know better predictors than the ones developed by data scientists because they understand the business and know what features and variables to to incorporate and and so on. So, I, I if I were starting an a AI operation now, I would definitely not try. Oh, let's just hire the usual you know suspects in the data science area. One that's really hard to do. There aren't enough of them, and there's this other opportunity. Clearly, you need some data science types to help you, you know, maintain guardrails on people's models and uh, sure. uh, see whether Having the things op- that, yeah, yeah. but uh, I think we're really missing out on an opportunity if that's all we do is assume that you've got to have data scientists to, to do everything in AI.
1: No, it's it's, it's fascinating you, you call that out. I think one of the trends, and I... I I think I definitely think on the hype meter, it's a little high, the no-code, low-code platforms for AI right now, because one of the things that, you know, after exiting my last startup uh, early last year, the year before, end of eight year before, I was exploring, what do I do next? And one of the uh, concepts that I tested out was AutoML, just, you know, focusing on either a particular domain or vertical, but then how do you capture the human knowledge that's usually on the edges, not in the COEs with employees? And give them the tools to go do it. And something I found out was actually a little interesting. And maybe it's kind of it's moving very fast, so these things change quite, quite, quite quickly. Number one, most critical business problems that need to be solved through AI. Most organizations, if there is belief and uh, understanding that AI is going to solve, you know, be a huge part of their digital transformation journey, they get the budgets to hire those data scientists. They get the budget to actually get that centralized folks right? So what ends up happening in AutoML projects is usually you're stuck with problems that are not tier one problems for those enterprises. So it's probably a tier two, tier three problems, which leads to the same problem, which is there'll be experiments, but nothing will go into production, right? So one, one area that i walked away with saying, well, there is if you can build the infrastructure for those things also to go into production as a part of your regular CI/CD pipelines and things like that. Maybe there is an opportunity. Just make it easy. Um, the other thing I found out was like um, in this in this process, I think we're we're clubbing a lot of different things into this data science world, right? If you look at the traditional BI and self-service BI tools. I mean, that's where that market is also going. So there is that aspect of, you know, if I can just do experiments on data that'll inform decisions I have to make or my department has to make, but it's not something that's going to completely transform the organization. And so I think the BI folks will, uh, our capability sets when that matures with more inbuilt and built-in AI is going to help solve that problem. That's, that was my uh, takeaway from exploring that market a little bit. Um,
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I I think we are incorporating too much into the data science role. We need to sort of break that apart into a whole variety of things, data engineering, um, um, data product um, management, in in a sense. That's huge. Yeah, there's the whole ongoing maintenance issue with um, tools like MLOps and so on, and maybe that's a different job. Um, uh the translators the people who you know can make sense of it to to the business and and get their trust of, that it's worth you know doing something about um so um we really if we're serious about this there're really a whole set of jobs a whole set of activities that we really need to build the capability for i was talking to capital 1 uh recently and they you know said we were trying to um Uh, hire 3,000 data engineers and in one year we couldn't do it so we just started retraining a lot of our people internally and built a data engineering course is phenomenally popular and I think we're also missing out on this opportunity to take a lot of our existing people and give them new skills that make them much more valuable to the organization.
1: I totally agree I think you know you, you have a very very um You know, that's a that's a brilliant perspective because I think if you really look at every organization, nobody has met their hiring goals in data in the last year. Everybody I talked to, nobody could hire the data scientists they wanted to hire, the data engineers they want to hire. So if you really double click, you'll see that there is a lot of separation of concerns that you can do in that same job family, right? So you now have a data scientist job family that you write up where and say, I want this person to do modeling oh, they should also be able to be an expert in Python. And then A, I want them to package it in a way that that can be deployed in production. And then number one, they have to maintain it. So there's data drift, they have to take the model out, retrain it, put it back in production. And, and they're like, wait, that's unicorn. We don't, we don't have people like that. There are probably very few people in the world that can do all of that, right? Um, and I think while while it's a noble goal to create this AI superstars, so you can understand the entire life cycle, the more practical approach will be break that out into five different jobs, and you might actually be more successful, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I still think that data scientists should care about deployment and so on, and should respect how important it is. You know, if if their models never get deployed, eventually somebody's going to say, "I'm not sure we really need you around here." But um, having to manage it all themselves, I think, is way too much to ask.
1: Awesome, awesome, Tom. I have one, you know, w- w- one other area, and I'm keeping an eye on the time. Uh, one, uh, the, the the notion of ethics and trusted AI, right? There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of, you know, uh, momentum. There's a lot of public policy announcement and work happening and stuff. How are organizations? How should organizations think about this whole framework of responsible AI, right? I mean, what w- what are some, you know, frameworks that you, they should be thinking about?
0: Well, you know, the the frameworks and the policies are easy, frankly. Everybody says the same thing. We want responsible AI, transparent AI, um, uh, and so on. It's the day-to-day enforcement and administration of those policies and frameworks that's challenging. And, you know, I don't see a lot of that happening yet. I don't think that people have created... Roles or committees or responsibilities for doing that. Yet they just sort of draft some policies. Frankly, until pretty recently, the vast majority of ethical AI people were at vendors. Uh, you know, they were at Google until Google fired a lot of them. Anyway, um, they were at Microsoft. They were at Salesforce, etc. Now a few companies have started to create these roles um, um, within the company itself, but. I was talking recently to a consumer products company. I can't really name them yet because they haven't approved what I wrote about them. But they um, created a set of policies and then they started to say, uh, wow, you know, uh, anything we do, for example, on workforce AI is probably going to violate some emerging rules in Europe and New York City and so on. So even though there's a yeah. huge opportunity for using workforce AI to hire the right people and avoid attrition and so on, we have to be really really careful if we do anything in that area because of the the regulatory policies that are emerging on it. Facial recognition AI is another area, you know, the yeah. IRS just backed away from that yesterday after thinking, you know, we're going to use facial recognition AI to confirm that You are who you are when you want to call us to talk about your taxes, not that there's anybody there to actually answer the phone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So uh, I think that day-to-day administration of of these uh, approaches is going to be very difficult. The other thing to remember is human beings are also very biased in their decision-making. And so we have to say, okay... AI can be biased because it's created by humans using data about humans in many cases, but is it less biased than the human decision-making about hiring or or, uh, how we treat customers or whatever? Um, And the, the other thing we have to keep in mind is there aren't that many stories. We can tell the same stories keep coming up about AI bias. If I hear again about the Amazon hiring bias, you know, I'm just not going to be able to keep my lunch down. It's, we need um, we need to realize this is not happening that terribly often before we overreact and overregulate.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually true. I think the, t- the two things that, and you're so right, I think there is a lot more good that is happening than bad. And obviously, any kind of news media, it's the, you know, you, you're trying to Play on the alarmist news. So obviously that gets, you know, Hollywood writes the narrative for AI, at, be, at least for a long time, right? It had been writing the narrative for AI. Uh, yeah. But I think that the one... Go ahead, sir.
0: Well, I was just going to say one of uh,
1: my... I'm a visiting
0: professor at Oxford now, and there's a team of people who are writing an article about these AI disasters, and they've been able to identify a hundred around the world over the last 10 years. That's not really very many, given... You know, how many
1: people That's and so companies true. and projects there are in the world. That's so true. But I think that said, the other thing that you pointed out, I think it's very critical that you need a way to manage this on a day-to-day basis. How do you really, you know, how do you really capture this and make sure that everybody working towards is compliant, is, is, there's no reputational risk, there's no all the risks that associated with AI, the unintended consequences risk, if you will, right? Uh, so I think, you know, the, the, the whole... Even though, you know, I I wrote some, you know, predictions or bets for the the year this year. And one of the things I said was like, AI ethics will still be and will remain a buzzword. But I don't think organizations will start really, you know, they start taking it seriously, but to really help them take it to the next level and really, you know, ingrain that in their day-to-day, there needs to be a lot more maturity and tools and capabilities that needs to happen, right? And it's happening. It's slowly happening.
0: Um, yeah. And particularly if we're democratizing it, we're going to need some tools that let us know what the heck are people doing all around the company in this in this yeah. area. If, before then, you productionize an algorithm, somebody might want to take a look at it and make sure it's not going to be very embarrassing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Tom, this has been fascinating. What are you working on? Talk to us about the, the, the books that you're writing um, and when do we expect that this year?
0: Uh, well, I wish their publishing processes were faster, but the first one is going to be, um, it's called working with AI from MIT press and, um, it's 29, we did have 30, but my editor didn't really like one of them, 29 cases of people who work day to day with AI and, you know, collaborating with a machine, smart machine and, um, We do the case studies, and then you know what are the lessons that we can learn about the future of work from that. So, that that one uh, is, I think, coming out in early fall. The next one coming out will be a book about AI and healthcare. It's called an advanced introduction to AI and healthcare. Really focused more on providers and how much should they invest in AI and is it, you know, clinical or administrative or device related or or whatever. And then the third one is the one that I was saying more about the all in on AI one that's from Harvard Business Review press and it's looking like October maybe November for that one. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd love to take a
1: long time to come out sadly. No, I yeah, well, I mean thanks for doing that. Thanks for writing it and I can't wait for wait to get my hands on it. Definitely want to talk to you offline on the healthcare and AI thing. I think there is a, uh, th- there is some, I, I've been, I've been spending a lot of time personally on that space as well, uh, on the one hand. And then the last book, the all-in on AI, the headline is very clear to me, right? It's AI. And if it's in AI, it's go big or go home, right? It's basically, you have to just go all in to win with AI. Um, exactly. This is awesome. Uh, Tom, this has been fantastic. How can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the internet?
0: Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I publish a lot of stuff on LinkedIn or create yeah. links to it. It's tomdavenport.com. Um, uh, my email address is available through tomdavenport.com, so I'm easy, Perfect. easy to find, easy to contact.
1: Awesome. Tom, this was a blast. I learned so much and I'm sure the audience is going to learn so much. Thanks so much for spending the time. Thanks
0: for the opportunity, Ganesh. Great talking to you. Cheers.
1: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.